A heads up for listeners. This podcast includes a discussion of suicide during and after pregnancy. As Meghan Markle revealed to Oprah Winfrey in a now viral interview that she, quote, did not want to be alive anymore, unquote, I listened in stunned silence to her describe her shame, her inability to stay home alone, her admission that she, quote, just didn't see a solution, unquote, and she, quote, thought it would have solved everything for everyone, unquote. That's what I was thinking when I made a suicide attempt during pregnancy a decade ago. That was Kara Zivin, a professor of psychiatry and of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Michigan, reading from her recent first opinion titled, Meghan Markle gave voice to the despair I once felt during pregnancy. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. At Cytiva, our mission is to advance and accelerate therapeutics. Our customers undertake life-saving activities from biological research to developing vaccines, biologic drugs, and novel cell and gene therapies. Our job is to supply the tools and services they need to work better, faster, and safer. Learn more about Cytiva at Cytiva.com. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of Stat's First Opinion, our platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare providers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Welcome to the podcast, Kara. Hi, glad to be here. So I, I think I need to start with sort of a full disclosure here. You and I met a few weeks ago through the 2021 Media and Medicine course at Harvard Medical School. It's an intensive program for people, many of them clinicians and researchers like you, with a health-related story to tell. And you're actually one of two students I'm advising as part of the course. What's the main story you want the course to help you tell, Kara? I came to the course to tell this story, not recognizing or realizing that Meghan Markle would have this interview with Oprah during this uh, course this spring. So I was hoping to talk about understanding more about mental health during pregnancy and postpartum including risks for suicide and other forms of death, such as overdose, homicide, accidents, and drawing more attention to those issues. And this opportunity arose with this uh, topic being raised in the media, in public awareness. And so I worked on writing an op-ed that I shared with you shortly afterward. So I knew who you were when your essay appeared in my inbox. But I would have published it even if we had never met. It had four key elements that I look for in a first opinion. Future writers take note. The essay was about something people were talking about. It was timely. It arrived the day after the Markle Winfrey interview had aired. It had a unique perspective, and there was a highly relevant personal element to it. As you mentioned, you are taking the Harvard course to get the word out about depression and other mental health issues during pregnancy. As you watched Meghan Markle talk with Oprah, 
What was going through your mind? So it was interesting because I did not watch the interview live. It was honestly past my bedtime. Um, and I heard about it, though, from my sister and my best friend were texting me in the middle of watching it saying, you, you know, you need to pay attention to this because they knew I was interested in this topic. And, you know, obviously the interview covered a wide range of issues that affect public health and society. But I was particularly struck by the discussion, and I admit I'm paraphrasing some of what I heard them say, where she talked about um, speaking with Harry and saying, you know, admitting that she was struggling with her mental health. And he said, well, you know, we're supposed to go to this event tonight. I don't think you should go. And she said, I'm afraid or, you know, I can't be home alone. And so then they spliced in pictures during the television interview of that specific event. She was wearing this beautiful blue gown. She, you know, they looked very, you know, together. He was holding her hand. They were walking across a ballroom floor. And, you know, the public obviously wouldn't have known in that moment what was happening in her life and, and that discussion she had earlier that day. And I had similar experiences, not necessarily going to a ballroom event, but experiences where I looked very professional and put together. I actually delivered a colloquium in my university with a visiting mentor from another university where we were actually talking about depression and death, ironically, which was part of both of our research. And he was actually a physician and you know, between the, the very nice dinner we had the night before and the colloquium the next day, I had, you know, I was thinking about, can I drive my car off a road? Can I jump off a bridge? Can I jump out of a building? And I never told him and I didn't tell other people, you know, I put on my makeup, I did my hair, I had my very nice maternity dress, I was about five months pregnant, and nobody knew and I was talking about this topic. So I mentioned this story as a way of, of indicating that people, what they look like on the outside, you know, mental illness can be invisible. Suicidal thoughts can be things that we don't see. And yet, you know, nobody really knows what's going on in someone else's head or in their house. And so I think that was a moment that really struck me in, in that interview. As you wrote and read at the top of the podcast, you had it sounded like severe depression during pregnancy. Can you can you share your experience of that? So it's it's a variety of different factors, and I just want to mention that there you know there's no blood test for mental illness, right? So it can be a whole variety of different things. Um, it started for me in a couple ways. One was that I started developing really severe insomnia very early in my pregnancy. You know, I would have anticipated by the end of pregnancy you know, it might be difficult to sleep or even when you have a newborn, but I didn't anticipate, you know, before the end of my first trimester being unable to fall asleep and, st and stay asleep. And I think many of us who've struggled with sleep at various times in our lives can appreciate that if you string together enough days like that, it can really have a negative effect on your emotional well-being. And, you know, that coupled with um, a number of different things that were going on in my life. I had recently remarried. I had we had moved, we'd bought a house. Um, I had just become a mother to a, my four-year-old stepson. I was an, an assistant professor trying to get tenure and I needed to write multiple research grants. 
I was afraid of pregnancy and delivery. You know, all, there were all these different factors that were swirling around in my life. And, you know, as my pregnancy went on, I, I struggled more and more. Um, another thing I think that's important to talk about is that I had taken a low dose of antidepressant prior to getting pregnant. And I decided to stop it because um, I didn't want to take medication during pregnancy. Many women don't. Um, but I but I was aware of the fact that there was research indicating that people who stop taking an antidepressant during pregnancy have, you know, two thirds of those people are likely to relapse during pregnancy. And in some ways I knew that from my research hat. And but yet as a, you know, as a woman, it actually happening to me, I didn't want to be one of those people taking medications. And yet I became one of those people that then really struggled. And by the time you know, I, I started trying to get help for it. It was almost too little too late. You also have discussed publicly um, a suicide attempt during pregnancy. It, it sometimes seems like it's up to people with a platform, Meghan Markle, yourself, to start conversations about mental health by really vulnerably revealing your own experience. But that impetus to help others strongly conflicts with personal privacy. How do you resolve those two? I've had challenges with this idea of how open to be about my experiences. And I note that this happened a decade ago, and I'm also in a different space in my life and in my career than I was shortly afterward. You know, it was particularly challenging for me because I worked in and was a faculty member in a department of psychiatry at a university where I received treatment. And I had a lot of shame and guilt in, in ways that I tried to hide. I literally had an office on the second floor of the building that we know of as the depression center. And then I entered the building as a patient and sat in the waiting room on the first floor. And I would sit there and try to hide. I'd, I'd wear sunglasses inside as if somehow someone would not recognize me <laughs> because I was wearing sunglasses. And, and um, it was a, you know, it was a really hard and difficult, but I've, I've decided that it's important to me to try to reduce stigma, to try to increase public awareness, to try to help other women and families. And if I can't talk about it when I work in this field and I do research in this field, what am I doing? <laughs> and, and so I've, you know, I don't tell every single element of the entire story, but I've, uh, but I've also tried to use this for public health perspective. Medicine seems like it should be a safe place, and healthcare professionals should be safe people to turn to, but it sounds like they aren't. I think that stigma around mental illness definitely still persists, as well as substance use. And it's hard, you know, if I had, had survived breast cancer or some other physical illness, I might not have had the same resistance or fear about talking about these illnesses now as I I do about mental health. I worry about it, you know, undermining my credibility as a researcher, as a scientist, as a parent. But I also feel that the way that we deal with stigma is by being more open about our experiences. And I've been fortunate that as a result of, of talking about some of these issues that other women that I've known and even people I haven't known have reached out. And to me, that's one of the most gratifying parts of doing this work is knowing that I could potentially help other women feel comfortable reaching out and getting help from their primary care physician, from a therapist, from a trusted family member, 
in different ways. That's why I do this work. Does pregnancy add a whole extra level or layer to this? Absolutely, because I think that women are particularly worried about, you know, am I going to lose my baby? Both, you know, like literally, you know, what is going to happen to them physically, but also, am I going to lose custody? Is someone going to take my baby away? And that makes people very scared about reaching out for help. And, and I think that's something that we need to work on as a society is making women feel safe to get the care they need and their families rather than, you know, people hiding and not being able to get help. Were you ever worried when you first started thinking about talking about this issue that your job might be in jeopardy? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I had tenure. I got tenure the year after. Well, I went up for tenure the year after this happened, and I, got, I received it the following year. But I did worry about what other people would think, both in, in my department at the medical school, you know, at other places that I've worked. I didn't believe that I would get fired, but I didn't know how people would regard me. Would I impede my future promotions or access to research funds or publications? I didn't know. But I felt like it was a, a, a risk worth taking. And I think there are other examples of people who have done this work. You know, Kay Redfield Jameson is someone I've always looked up to her work and followed, you know, for 25 years. And so I think that, again, I'm, I'm trying to help do my part to normalize this type of experience. Not that we want this to be a normal experience, but especially when I realize just how common it is. But I also recognize that people will continue to be afraid. You wrote in your essay that many people believe that pregnancy represents a blissful time in an individual's life and hormones offer protection from mental illness. That myth must make it really difficult to open up about depression or anxiety or other mental health issues. I think it does definitely make it really hard for people when you have this idea or this impression or this goal of glowing and being beautiful and, you know, these these pictures and, and the whole scene. We can all paint the fairy tale in our head, I'm sure, and have known people personally who have had really wonderful pregnancy experiences. And in no way do I wish to diminish that from anyone. I think that makes it that much harder when that's not your reality, because you're juxtaposing this idea you have in your mind of what you think something should be and what you're living each day. And so it can be very challenging. And it's not that it's what I was trying to say about the issue about pregnancy, not protecting people is just that the reproductive age for women is a peak point for onset of various mental disorders, regardless of whether they ever become pregnant. And so, you know, and people who have, you know, high risk for other reasons, whether it's pre-existing mental illness, whether it's family history, whether it's low income, young age, there's, you know, prior physical illnesses, there's lots of different risk factors. You know, it can be a challenging time period. And I think we need to be cognizant of that and not just assume that like, oh, you'll be fine. You're great. You know, you're protected. This is all going to go well, because then when it doesn't, we need to be prepared for how to handle that. What you've learned over the years is that, you know, just how wrong that myth is and that uh, mental health issues during and after pregnancy are common, including um, suicide and self-harm. Can you can you talk a little bit about what you've learned about this connection? 
you know, I was aware of depression both during pregnancy and postpartum. I hadn't fully appreciated how common suicidality could be in that it's a leading cause of maternal death. I learned about that. And then my research team and I decided to pursue this as part of one of my NIH, or sorry, National Institutes of Health funded studies on this topic to look at trends in suicidality. And that was a paper we published last fall that actually resurfaced in the media as in addition to my uh, work here because trends in suicidality appeared to increase in our study population, which in this case was privately insured women, but we know this is true for people with public insurance, uh, Medicaid. And that could be for many different reasons, whether it, part of it could be that people feel more comfortable disclosing these symptoms. And so that could be a better detection issue, but it could also be, uh, you know, increased incidence or prevalence of these conditions. So it's, it's multifaceted clearly, but, you know, in some way, weird, small way, it made me feel better that I was less alone in these feelings and experiences. Not that I would want this to happen to any other women, but just to understand that other people do go through this as well. What are some of the more striking things you've learned over the past few years about mental health issues in pregnancy or, or the postpartum period? Well, another study that we worked on that we ta- I talked about in the, um, the op-ed is that we looked at the costs of untreated perinatal mood and anxiety disorders or, or, or maternal mental health conditions. I was fortunate to work with a number of different foundations that were interested in this topic. And I will say that I think many of us agree that it's frustrating to have to talk about the financial costs as if we have to justify why we should be treating these conditions because we Mm, never talk about, you know, it's important to treat diabetes because it, you know, it has a financial burden on society. And yet this often happens with mental disorders, not just during pregnancy, But one of the largest components of the costs that we found had to do with productivity loss, which means either going to work and not functioning very effectively or missing work entirely. And so that, and that's an argument I've tried to make throughout my career to people who may be less interested in mental health in any capacity, which is that, you know, there's a financial cost to employers by not ensuring that the people who need help get help. And so if you're not going to care about this from the public health, public good perspective, you may think about it from the bottom line perspective. But either way, I think it's important to recognize just, you know, how costly and how burdensome this illness can be. It seems like you've had a long journey for the past 10 years or so. You know, what was your path to getting getting healthy? So that's been an interesting one and could be a whole a whole other long discussion because again I think my situation was probably fairly unusual I, unlike in the past when I had you know a low dose of an antidepressant or talk therapy did prove useful in this case it really didn't and so I ended up undergoing electroconvulsive therapy starting when my son was 5 weeks old it was you know I started the day after my first anniversary to my uh, new second husband. And, you know, that was a whole difficult decision to decide to undergo that type of treatment. I was familiar with it. I had actually published research on it, but it's not the kind of thing you think about wanting to put yourself through. <laughs> but I was sick enough. 
and struggling enough that, you know, I, I, I really felt desperate. And also, um, we really wanted to get me healthier as soon as we could so that I could start to bond with my son because I was, I was not functioning very well, you know, not just before his birth, but also after his birth. And it was honestly really amazing how quickly my depression improved with that treatment. And But the side effect of that for me and sometimes for other people is short-term memory loss. So I have this gap of time in my son's early life that I, I cannot recall almost anything from that period of time. And that has always been really painful for me to have lost that, given again some of this fairy tale notion of what early motherhood could be like understanding that there's, you know, people often don't sleep and, and struggle, you know, with, with parenthood in the early days, but that particular aspect of it was hard for me. Um, and so I've done a number of things since then, you know, I eventually weaned off or weaned down on medication and therapy. Um, I spent a lot of time, I actually started running. I literally was starting to try to run away from this experience. I trained for many triathlons and half marathons. You know, I, I pursued that path for a while until I injured my feet. And then I started working on creative writing. And that was another way of trying to not treat writing as therapeutic, but almost as a reckoning on the page of what happened. You know, I ordered my medical record notes. There are hundreds of pages. I learn something every time I look at them. Who treated me? What did they say? So it's, it's, it's been quite a journey, but I think I've, I've learned a lot from it and trying to make something positive out of something difficult. Well, it sounds like that's happening. Um, as part of that journey, have you ever talked about it with your son? So that was an interesting question that you asked. So he's now 10 years old and I've at different points in my life tried to figure out different ways to talk about him that were age appropriate. And he knew that I was pursuing writing and um, he understands that I do work related to mental health and he understands that mental health has to do with your head. <laughs> That's sort of his conceptualization of my job. And I talked to him about being sad and being scared when I was going to become his mother, you know, I didn't know how to do that yet. I had not been a mother. Even being a stepmother was a different thing. And, you know, that dad helped and that both of his grandmothers helped, all of us. And we had other people supporting us. And I worked on getting better. And that's part of why I want to write about it and help other women. And so, you know, he left that alone more or less when I explained that. And it may come back up again at various points as he grows and ages. Um, but so that's kind of the level of what he knows about it. He doesn't remember me being sick. And I'm grateful for that. You know, you've said that it's hard for people who are pregnant or who have recently given birth to seek help. What what ways are there for people like that? So there are a variety of different ways, and I think that that is a, a growing, a growing discussion because you know people can speak to their primary care physician, they can speak to their obstetrician, they can speak to a therapist, but that can be challenging. And as we talked about, people may worry. There are also professional organizations that support women, whether it's Postpartum Support International. There's also the Maternal Mental Health. Leadership Alliance. There are uh, 2020 Mom in California. There are other groups like that. I think, you know, as providers learn more about uh, mental illness during pregnancy, there can be screening uh, 
for it. I also, to me, books really help. There were not very many at the time when I went through this a decade ago. I knew of Brooke Shields had a book called Down Came the Rain, um, but there are more now first-person narratives, which I think can be really helpful for people relating to other people's experiences on the page. So I, I think there are a number of options, but it can still be really hard to reach out. So Kara, in addition to healthcare professionals providing assistance, how can partners or other family members um, really help someone who's struggling? So I think that's an important question. I know it's something my husband struggled with because and my parents too, They nobody really for sure knew what to do to help me and they were available to me. So I think part of it is just being aware that this kind of thing can happen. You know, my husband has since said to me, like he just, he didn't fully appreciate how sick I really was and he didn't really know what to do to help me because he had never seen or been through something like this before. That's probably really common, don't you think? Yes, absolutely. I think that that partners and loved ones may not know what to do or understand it. Or again, it's not a visible illness. So, you know, you're you're trying to reckon with something that can be really challenging. And so trying to, you know, rely on one another, trying to reach out to the healthcare system, because I, I agree that advocacy is really important because Right. I did not have the energy to be trying to chase down someone if I didn't have a therapist. I was very fortunate as a faculty member in a psychiatry department. My colleagues helped connect me to help. But many other people obviously do not have those options. And it can be difficult, as many of us know, to get healthcare when we we don't know who we can go to or who our insurance is going to cover or any of those things. So I think having support... Another element of support that I had to think about is there are a lot of different types of providers. For example, there can be both pre-birth and post-birth doulas. There can be nannies. There can be childcare. There can be social workers. So there are, you know, is a, a wider network than you might initially think. But but I agree that having a partner ha- have an outlet too for someone to talk to. If, you know, this is really stressful. I have a new baby, and my you know my partner is really sick. This is hard. And and just giving voice to that as well, I think, is important. In the research that you've been doing, is this, are, are the numbers the same across the board or do they follow the same kind of uh, racial and ethnic gaps that we see with so many other things in the United States? Unfortunately, as your question alludes to, it sort of answers itself, which is, yes, we are seeing disparities. You know, there's a whole treatment pathway, right? First, you know, you have to detect someone, whether someone is ill or not, through some kind of screening or diagnosis. Then they need to be able to have access to some kind of treatment and actually potentially adhere to that treatment, have follow-up, and get better. And we see gaps all along the spectrum, but more so among you know, non-white individuals, unfortunately. And so that leads to further problems in, in the quality of care that people receive and the timeliness of care. And so that's something that I think is really important to pay attention to and address because this disease knows no boundaries by race, by age, by geographic location. And so trying to help people who may have harder times accessing care is really important. So we've talked about how individuals, either family members or healthcare professionals can help. Are there, are there 
policy approaches that could help with this problem? One key issue that's been surfacing in the policy sphere recently is the option under the American Rescue Act that just passed last week um, as part of the coronavirus package. That bill also allows for the option for states to expand postpartum Medicaid coverage from 60 days to one year. And that is something that advocates and researchers are all really interested in seeing move forward because that could help women. You know, often these issues don't necessarily immediately appear or have a longer tail than beyond two months after delivery. And so we wouldn't want those people to lose their health insurance coverage at a time of of great need for them and their infants. And so that is an important policy um, issue that is, is very current. I would also argue that we need to have people screened multiple times, you know, not just once during pregnancy or postpartum, but at different points along that pathway, because how you feel in your first trimester or your third trimester or two days after delivery or two months after delivery may differ. And different people have different experiences, you know, at different times during that time period. So I think just being mindful of those kinds of issues. Well, Kara, I hope that sharing your story and the work you're doing will make it easier for people to seek help for mental health issues during pregnancy and save lives. I really appreciate your talking with me today. Thank you so much for having me and for highlighting this issue. During the show, Kara mentioned several resources for people who need help with uh, mental health issues. I also want to mention the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. It's 1-800-273-8255. It offers free and confidential support 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Our senior producer is Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. I love to hear from listeners. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And please put podcast in the subject line. And if you have a minute, Please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.